Job chapter 40, and we're reading the whole chapter and the first 11 verses of chapter 41. Um, You can find it on page 564, or follow along on the screen. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendour, and clothe yourself in honour and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. Yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant, plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow. The the poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes? Or trap him and pierce his nose? Can you pull in the leviathan with a, fush, with a fish hook? Or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with, the, with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird? Or pit? Put him on a leash for your girls. Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Well, welcome. Uh, Good evening to all of you. Good to see you here. There is an outline for tonight that will help. It's quite a detailed uh, topic that we're considering tonight, so grab an outline. But as we begin, um, also know the phone number will come on the screen and that's your opportunity to ask questions. We'll take one or two questions at the end after this talk. So if you do have a question, do message that in 
but uh, as we begin, I'd like to invite you to turn to the person next to you and ask the question, um, why does God allow suffering? So attempt to answer that question yourself and then I'll call you back in a moment and we'll attempt to have a look at this question together and see what the Bible says. So turn around, ask each other, why do you think God allows suffering? So you attempt to answer that yourself first. Okay, well, let, let's begin. Let's have a look at this big question. Um, I might pray again and ask that God might help us understand this very deep, important question. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we approach this question, you, you might give us a heart of humility, uh, wanting to learn from you and not come with presuppositions about you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear God, why do you allow suffering? Why do you allow evil to happen in the world? You hear this question a lot, don't you? Why do you allow evil to happen in the world and why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, I wonder whether you have asked or thought about such a question. Now, of course, when people ask this question, they ask it for many and various reasons. There are all sorts of reasons for why people ask this question. Sometimes this question is asked because it is often seen as the knockdown argument against Christians. It's seen as the Achilles heel of Christianity. It's been argued that way, isn't it? It's a knockdown argument. If there is a God and he allows suffering, either it is because he is not good and he allows evil to happen or that he is not powerful and he can't stop evil. Have you heard that? way of logic or that argument before. But sometimes this question is asked because the person is just angry with God. I'm furious with God. I want God to justify himself. Why did he allow this to happen to me? How dare God allow this to happen to me? Why did my dog die? Why did I get this uh, car accident? Why did I get cancer? How, God, did you allow things like tsunamis and earthquakes to kill and devastate this world? You see, so this person comes with anger. God, how dare you? But sometimes when people ask this question, it comes from someone who is genuinely wanting to seek answers and seeking comfort. Why am I going through this? Who can help me now? Now, just this past week, I spoke with a lady who worked as a paediatrician and she witnessed children suffering all sorts of heart problems, depressing and heartbreaking for her to see. And she witnessed how parents just grieved and grieved and grieved over their dead child. She saw and witnessed suffering to that extent. And so she asked me, why does God allow babies to be born with congenital deformities? Now, how do you go about answering such a question? What do you say? 
How do you answer that satisfactory? How does God allow, why does God allow such terrible, horrible, heartbreaking things to happen in this world he made? You see, that is the ultimate why question. Why? So how will you go about answering it? Now, I'm not sure how you went with your attempt with each other. 30 seconds is not much. But before I attempt to give some sort of answer to that, I need to say this. You see, this is a big question that's not just for the Christians to answer. It's not only for the Christians to answer. It's in fact a question that everyone has to answer. And so, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether you're a Christian, who you have to, in your own world view, be consistent with your own view and you have to answer that question for yourself. How do you, in your own world view, make sense of evil and suffering in this world? You see, it's not really just the Christians who are cornered by this question. Everyone is. Everyone has to try to make sense of evil and suffering in this world. And so what we'll do first now is think through some of the major world views before we consider the Christian answer. And so let's think about a few of these world views. If your world view is atheism, that is a belief that, is a belief that there is no God, that itself is a belief, uh, a faith position that there is no God. If your worldview is atheism, then if you're consistent, it's in fact very difficult for you to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. Because if that is your worldview, then we are merely the product of some cosmic accident. What happens is really just because stuff happens. That is as good as your answer can be. It's just an accident. Now, of course, people will give technical words to make it sound more intelligent than it is and will call it natural selection or survival of the fittest. But in the end, who cares? Who cares when people suffer? Who cares if people suffer the fittest survive? That's just what happens. Stuff happens. Now, how comforting is that in the midst of suffering? You're suffering, but if that is your worldview, all you can say is that, well, just stuff happens. Now, ironically, it's strange to see that often it's those who don't believe that there is a God who are most angry with God. It's a bit of irony. I'm not sure if you picked that up. Now, that's one worldview. Now, if your worldview is different from that, you're not an atheist, but you're a pantheist, that is, you believe that there are many multiple gods out there, like in Hinduism, then your answer will be along the lines of, well, evil and suffering is because that there are these many gods and they're competing for your worship. They're out to get you. They're angry with you. They're out to get you to bow down to them, to worship them. Now, how comforting is that reason in the midst of suffering? You see, you're suffering because you're not doing your part in appeasing the gods. You're not doing your part in appeasing the gods. That is that worldview. Now, let's just say you come from a different worldview and that is one that is impersonal, one of the impersonal Eastern religions like Buddhism. Now, what's evil and suffering? How is that explained there? Well, the way it's explained is that it's just really an illusion. It's not really real. Evil and suffering. Now, how comforting is that in the midst of suffering? 
you're told, well, you're suffering, but it's really just an illusion. Well, when I'm suffering, I'm feeling it. It doesn't feel like an illusion to me. I'm feeling it and it hurts and it breaks my heart. And so, whatever worldview you come from, whatever worldview you hold, you have to answer that question. It's not merely a question for the Christians to answer. Everyone has to answer that question. And so, now, having said that, let's consider now how a Christian makes sense of evil and suffering in the world. And what you all have to do is that you have to assess it, weigh it up against the other worldviews, weigh it up with your own worldview to see whether it makes any better sense of this world. And so what we'll do with answering this question is that we'll answer in three parts. Firstly, the terrible answers we have heard. Secondly, the partial answers we can know. And thirdly, the sufficient answer we can trust. And so firstly, the terrible answers we have heard. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard all sorts of answers and reasons to why God allows suffering. And I suspect for many of them, they are just dissatisfying or just completely untrue. And of course, Christians are sometimes to blame for it, often are to be blamed for it, for saying more than they really know. Now, in my reading and research for this question, I came across a few answers that are just terrible answers to why God allows suffering. They're cringeworthy and just blatantly wrong. One example. One of the big recent tragedies in our lifetime that, are, that got a lot of people asking, why does God allow suffering, was the September 11 terrorist attack in New York. Remember that? During our lifetime? Some of you may not have been born yet, but most of us were. Now, what happened was that people, when that happened, it was terrible, it was a tragedy. What happened was that people were very angry with God after that, desperate for answers. And you can understand why. How could a powerful God, who is powerful, sovereign, how could he appear to have lost control with this world? And so it was a busy time during that time for the churches. A lot of people flocked to church, attendance increased 25%. Lots of questions were asked, lots of answers were given. One of these answers, a well-meaning Christian circulated an email during that time. He was attempting to explain where God was on September 11. And this was his answer. He said, God was very busy that day, keeping a lot of people off flights, delaying a lot of people in traffic so they didn't get into the World Trade Centre. God was busy that day, preventing a lot of tragedies. Now, what do you make of that type of answer? Why God allowed suffering? I mean, when you hear such an answer, what kind of lame God is that? What kind of lame God is that who, who does not bring any comfort at all? A God who tries his best but failed anyway. That's a weak and a pathetic God. And that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. You see, well-meaning Christians saying more than they know. Another example in a best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, this is a book, a book written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. 
a rabbi. He was trying to make sense of suffering in this world, of evil that is experienced. And he wrote this book after the tragedy he experienced. His uh, three-year-old son was diagnosed with a degenerative disease and later died at the age of 14. And so in experiencing this trial, this evilness, this suffering, he writes this. He writes, God can't do everything. This was his reasoning. And we need to recognise his limitations and forgive him for not making a better world. That was his reasoning. And his uh, his conclusion, which sounds noble, was in fact so, so self-righteous. And he said this, Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you found out that he is not perfect? Can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? And so what he's saying is, this rabbi is saying, you need to find it in your heart to even forgive God. Now, Kushner said those words, seeking comfort for himself in his experience of suffering, seeking comfort for his readers. But does it actually work? Does it actually work? saying, reasoning that God is imperfect. Well, it doesn't work at all. I mean, what kind of comfort can you find with such a pitiful God? You can't trust your life with such an impotent and imperfect God. But more than that, that's simply not true. That also is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. And so well-meaning people saying more than they know. Another example, a terrible answer, this one. You may have heard of this one. This is often used to bring comfort to parents who lose their babies, their child. This was a poem I found, sometimes used as memorials or written on cards, and and it goes this way, a poem. God needed an angel in heaven to stand at the Saviour's feet. His choice must be the rarest, a lily pure and sweet. He gazed upon the mighty throng, then stopped and picked the best. Our child was his chosen one. With Jesus she's now at rest, a soul too precious for this earth. Know you are forever loved. What's the reason for why God allows suffering? Why this child was taken away from this mother? The reasoning is that God needs an angel and that's why your child is dead. Now that might appear to bring some comfort to a grieving mother. It might help her feel that her child's special. But does it really bring any comfort at all? I mean, who would worship such a needy God? A God who needs to take your child from you. I mean, those are terrible words to say to anyone. But not only so, they are untrue words. That also is not the God of the Bible. He does not need your child to make more angels. That is not the God of the Bible. And so well-meaning Christians say more than they know. And so what we've looked at first, terrible answers we may have heard. Utter nonsense, just completely untrue. Speaking more of we know. And so we must remember that we don't speak more than we know. We only speak as much as we know. And so what do we know? Well, this brings us to the second part of this answer. 
What do we know? Well, what we know are only partial answers. Not the complete answer, not the complete picture. We can't say to a suffering mother, you're suffering now because of this and this and this. You've got cancer now because of this and this and this. We can't say that. We don't have all the answers. We don't see the full picture. We are only given partial answers. Partial answers of what God has chosen to reveal to us, to make known to us. No more than that, no less than that. You see, when anyone asserts that a good and a powerful God could never allow suffering and evil in this world, do you know what type of claim that is? A God who is powerful and good can never allow suffering in the world. What type of claim is that? Well, you see, it's a claim made from a position of I know it all. It's in fact an arrogant claim. I know it all. I mean, a good God just cannot function in that way. That's what I think. But then that's just what you think. And it is speaking from a position of arrogance. You see, just because I can't see any reasons for why God would allow suffering does not mean that there aren't any. God might have some very good reasons that we're just not aware of. We do not know everything. God sees everything. We are not allowed to see everything. You see, when I come that way, that is to take a position of humility. There may be reasons that I do not know. I don't know it all. And so in the Bible, God does reveal some reasons for why he allows evil and suffering. But he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't give us the full picture. And so over and over again, we get this sense in the Bible, particularly in the book of Job, he is God and we're not. We're not in a place of God to see everything, to know everything. He is God and we're not. But here are some of the reasons that we do know that God has revealed to us. One, evil and suffering is because of original sin, because of Adam and Eve, the first people created by God. Their rebellion against God, the original sin, meant that humanity is now broken and damaged on all levels, on the level of humans and humans no longer perfectly relating to each other in love, in peace, in harmony. There is fighting, there are wars, there is hating, there is stealing from each other, there is lying, there is gossip. There are all those things. It's because of original sin. But then on another level between humans and the world, this world is broken. Weeds, the job of gardening and weeding, that's a curse because of the first rebellion. And of course on the level of humans and God. That is now broken as well to the point that now humans are not merely ignorant of God but humans now have come to the point of hating God. So that's one reason. The second one, there is evil and suffering in the world because there is such a thing as the devil. A fallen angel cast out of heaven now causes havoc amongst people. There is real evil in this world and his ultimate aim is to turn humanity away from God. Stop believing in God. Believe in yourself. Believe in anything else but stop believing in God. That is his ultimate aim. Third reason, there is suffering because there are consequences to our actions. 
there are consequences to sins. You see, what we do, we are responsible for it. We were made responsible agents, responsible for our own actions. And so when I do something wrong, I can't blame my actions on evolution. This is just a natural progress of evolution. I can't blame genetic mutation for my actions. We are completely responsible agents. And so when I make a sinful choice, there are consequences and it causes suffering. So if I choose to drink and drive, there will be consequences. If I choose to be unfaithful to my wife, there will be consequences. It causes suffering. If I choose to be rude and unfriendly, there will be consequences. That's the third one. Fourth, suffering sometimes happens because of God's discipline. This is a strange idea. Bad things happening for good. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he treats as his own children. God disciplines for our good. That's another reason. Fifth, suffering to produce good. Suffering can, in fact, produce good in us. Hard to understand. You see how there are so many different reasons. In Romans 5, we read that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance produces character and character produces faith. It is for our good. God uses suffering for our good. Number six, suffering is expected for all those who do the right thing. One of the many promises, Jesus promised many things, but one of the promises he promises those who follow him, who are his disciples, is that they will be persecuted. They proclaim a God this world hates and they will be persecuted for it. It is expected. That's why suffering happens. Seventh, suffering is to humble us. Suffering might be God's way to remind us of our frailty, of our mortality, of our finiteness. God sometimes breaks us down before he builds us up. He humbles humbles us before we experience glory in the end. And for many, for many, you'll never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And that's the experience of many. And so here, seven quick reasons, but we must remember they are only partial answers. Partial answers. We can't say to someone, you're suffering because of number two, number five, number seven. We can't say to another person with cancer, you're suffering because of number one, number three and number four. We can't say that. We're not given the full picture. These are only partial answers given for us and that's all we need to know at this stage. And so if we add all these seven reasons together, I would think that they really only make a small percentage, only a small percentage of all the reasons that remains only in the mind of God. Only a small percentage of all the reasons that remain in the mind of God. And so, when we do come across people who do suffer and try telling someone who is grieving, a mother who has lost her son, and we try to give these reasons, you know, you're suffering because of Adam and Eve's sin or you're suffering this because this world is fallen, the, the world is in bondage to decay and death, or you're suffering because God is somehow disciplining you. you no, know, she doesn't want to hear that. 
and that will not be our place. We cannot align that suffering to that reason. Okay, we must remember these are only partial reasons. They're not everything there is to know about suffering because God has not revealed everything there is to know about suffering. And so where to from here? What then? In the midst of suffering? Or I'm trying to comfort someone who is suffering? And I do ask, dear God, why do you allow suffering? It's a legitimate question. What answer am I meant to receive? Well, that's why this book of Job is so helpful. This book is so helpful. In the midst of suffering, in the very pits and darkness of life, in wanting to find answers like Job, you see, God does not want us to ask the why question. God does not want us to ask the why question. But the who question, in the midst of suffering, who can help me now? In the midst of suffering, who can comfort me now? In the midst of suffering, who will walk with me now? You see, when we read Job, it's a magnificent book, but there's no answer to all the questions that Job asks. You see, at the beginning of the book, we're actually, as the readers of Job, we're given a glimpse that Job did not have. Remember that from our first reading, chapter 2? What happened? Why did Job suffer? Well, Job did not know, but it was God's initiative. Remember in chapter 2, if you do have your Bibles open, Job chapter 2, verse 3. It was God in the heavenlies speaking to whom? It was God in the heavenlies speaking to Satan asking Satan in verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you have incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And so what happened as a result of this thing, this event up in the heavens? Well, what happened? Well, Job, who did not know that this happened, suffered unspeakable things. His sons and daughters were killed. His wealth was gone and he was struck down with these festering sores. He experienced, in a sense, the worst kind of sufferings. And what did he do? He spent the next 35 chapters complaining, asking why? Why, God, why did this happen to me? Why am I suffering? And he tried to reason himself. He said, it would have been better for me not to have been born. 35 chapters asking why. His three friends come along. They come along thinking they they know all the answers. They come along thinking that they know why Job is suffering. And they say over 35 chapters, it's because you have done something wrong. It's because you've done evil. You have done something wrong against God and that's why God is punishing you. You're only suffering because there must be a reason. It has to be because you've done something. 35 chapters this happens. And so the three friends, a bit sometimes like us, perhaps coming to some issue or circumstance or or experience of suffering and trying to give our reason. 
You know, sometimes we behave like these three, three friends, responding to suffering with cold statements. It's because of this, one, five, seven. It's because of these reasons. That's why you're suffering. And then how did Job respond each time? These three friends who were meant to come and comfort him. Job is saying, I've done nothing wrong. I'm innocent. I do not deserve all of this that has happened to me. And this dialogue goes for 35 chapters. He asks, they answer, and he responds, you guys are hopeless, miserable comforters. 35 chapters that goes on. But then in chapter 38, God finally speaks out. And what does God do? Well, God, what God does was he gets them off their high horses. You don't get to question me. Do you notice that? God never provides an answer. In our reading, God never provides an answer. In fact, what God does was he questions them. He questions Job, question after question. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? What's Job meant to think? What are the friends meant to think? Well, obviously I wasn't there. God continues the question. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? What are they meant to answer? Well, of course not. We don't know where that, how, how, how that works. And God continues the question. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? God continues the question, putting them in their place, getting them off their high horses. Have the gates of death been shown to you? And what are they meant to say? What's Job meant to say? Well, of course not. And God goes on, question after question. Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? And continues to question, question, and question by question, they're coming down lower and lower and lower. They're recognising God is God and I'm not. And God asks in total over these few chapters, over 70 questions, doesn't give answers, just questions, more and more questions. Why? It's to put Job and his friends in their place. Get off your high horses. Who do you think you are to ask me to justify myself to you? And even by the end of Job, God in fact never reveals to him the interchange that we saw at the very beginning of Job. Remember that? We saw what happened in the heavens between God and Satan and we would expect by the end God to say to Job, well, you know what happened, Job? This was what happened. I struck the deal with Satan. I'll tell you what happened. Well, none of that. God did not reveal any of that to Job. Why? It was not his place to know. It's not our place to know. We do not need to know all that happens in the mind of God. And so in the end, how did Job respond? Job said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my face. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. In the end, Job did not get his why question answered, but he got his who question answered. This is the God who can help me now. This is the God who can comfort me now. This is the God who will walk with me now. And so, what do you say to a grieving mother who has lost her son? And I experienced this just last year. What do you say? Do we say number 157? 
Those are the reasons. The better answer would be this. I don't know. I don't know why God has taken your child. Don't know. But God does. God knows. And God wants you now to know that he can comfort you now. He loves you still. He cares for you you still. I don't know, but God does and he can help. In fact, what we find in the Bible is something even more satisfying than that because God has done something more than that. And that is God has, in the end, answered the ultimate who question. Who is the one who can help me now? Who is the one who can comfort me now? Who is the one who will walk with me now? Who is the one who gives me hope now? God has answered that. He's answered that in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, how so? In Jesus Christ, we see that God is not indifferent to suffering. When we humans complain to God, God, why do you allow suffering? We speak as though God has no idea of what suffering is like. We speak as though God is detached from suffering. We speak as though suffering is foreign to God. But there is nothing further from the truth. Now, this might be news to you, but the God of the Bible understands and knows suffering from the inside. In the Bible, the God of the Bible understands suffering from the inside. You see, in Jesus, God experienced the greatest depths of pain and suffering. What Jesus experienced is far greater than what you or I would ever experience. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out those terrifying words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus there on the cross was suffering hell for us. That infinite love of God the Father for God the Son that was there for all eternity at that moment was somehow ruptured. It would have been eternally unbearable for God the Father and God the Son. But at the cross, God suffered. God entered into our experience experience, and God suffered. And he suffered for a reason. It wasn't meaningless or aimless. He suffered for a reason, for the reason that all of us hate. We hate suffering. We hate it all. We hate evil. Well, he suffered for all of that so that he might bring forgiveness and hope to us all. He suffered so that he could reverse all that we hate about this world, all that we hate. He did it to reverse the curse of the fall. He suffered so that death can be finally dealt with forever. He suffered for that reason, so that we might have a life without suffering. I wonder whether that changes your idea of God. God is not indifferent to suffering. God knows suffering from the inside to the greatest extent. And so when we ask the question, Dear God, why do you allow suffering? Well, in Christianity, it does not provide all the answers. We're not given the full picture. We're given some reasons, some answers. 
But what it does provide is the who question. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we can see and understand there that we are suffering not because God doesn't care or love. We are not suffering because God is indifferent to suffering. We can see there that God in his son suffered and suffered for us and gives us the resources to face suffering with faith and hope rather than bitterness and despair. And so in the end, God does not give us the complete answer to the why question, but he gives us the complete answer to the who question. In the midst of suffering, I can trust in this God. I can trust in this God who is not only sovereign, but has suffered and bled for me. Now what I'll do now is I'll end with uh, the words of a play. A play that was written to make sense of how God knows suffering from the inside. Some of you may have heard of this play. It's called The Long Silence. It goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were seated at the great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but there were groups near the front, near the front of the throne. They, they talked heatedly, not cringing with cringing shame, but with belligerence. They were saying, can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a young brunette. She ripped up her sleeves and she revealed a tattoo numbered from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He was showing those at the front, close to the throne. He was demanding, look at this, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd up the front, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. And far across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God. Each one accused God of something, of evil, for allowing evil and suffering that he permitted in this world. And they were saying to each other, how lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. How lucky was God. But what did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in the world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. And so each of the groups, what they did, they sent forth their leader, chosen because they have suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a, a, a person wholly deformed as a child. And in the centre of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. At least they were ready to present their case against God. And it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to judge, they said, he must endure what they endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to life on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. 
give him a work so difficult that even his family would think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured and at last let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt he died. Let there be a great deal of witnesses to verify it. As each of these leaders announced their position, their portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval were happening in the plains that went up from the throng of the people assembled there. When the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. God had already served his sentence. And so when we ask, Dear God, why do you allow suffering? It is not because God does not understand. It is not because God does not care. It is not because God does not love. God is saying, All you need to know, and not all the reasons, all you need to know now is that you can still trust in me. I allow my son to bleed and die for you. That is how we answer it as a Christian. Let's pray.